0: The landmark Brown versus Board of Education case.
1: Oh.
2: Hey everyone, this is Andrew Parsons from Prologue Projects. I'm filling in for Leon while he's away. And on this premium episode of 5 to 4, Peter, Rhiannon, and Michael are talking about the Southern Manifesto. This was a document signed by nearly a fifth of the U.S. Congress responding to the ruling in Brown v. Board of Education. On May 17, this court ruled unanimously that segregation
0: in public schools was not legal. While Brown officially ended the policy of separate but equal, it did little to outline how inequality would be remedied.
2: So, southern states banded together to implement an organized resistance to integration. And its effects are still felt today. This is 5 to 4, a podcast about how much the Supreme Court sucks.
0: Welcome to 5 to 4, where we dissect and analyze the Supreme Court cases that have undermined our civil rights, like Drew Barrymore undermining organized labor. Got her. Mm. I'm Peter. I'm here with Rhiannon.
1: Hello. Hi.
0: And Michael. Hey, everybody. Good news down the wire from Hollywood Yeah, as we record this. Mm-hmm. Looks like there is a tentative agreement and it, that it is favorable to the good guys yes. from what I've heard. So I know we're a little bit late, but, you know, blow us Drew Barrymore. You suck. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And congrats to our homies who sacrificed to strike. Mm-hmm. Hopefully it's as good as we've heard and some folks will start getting paid. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And hopefully we get some good shows and movies. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. I would like to get back to the business of just shutting (laughs) my brain off and sucking in content. Yes, yet. that's right. Passive beam
1: it into my eyeballs. Thank you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Today we are talking about the Southern Manifesto and the massive resistance to Brown v. the Board of Education. This is something that I think like basically isn't really taught in American education. Mm. You know, Brown v. Board is a success story in American life and American politics. And the reality of it is that it was quite complicated. And in the 50s especially, there was an intense struggle between segregationists and the courts and the anti-segregationists, especially folks like the NAACP. And we wanted to sort of tell that story and talk about how it bleeds into our modern life and how this fight sort of shaped the 70 or so following years mm-hmm. of politics and law. We will give the disclaimer up front that we are not historians. And, you know, we're trying to condense a very complex story yeah. that has had thousands of books written about it and has more characters than you could possibly count and more little events that are all fascinating in their own ways than you could possibly count. We will be putting that into like an hour ten. So... (laughs) You're a historian, please cut us some slack, okay? Yeah. yeah. Please keep that in your mind space before you write a very long email that our producer is going to forward to us and then no one is going to respond to,
1: <laughs> okay? <laughs> right, right, right. I think it's important too. Like, look, we're a podcast about the Supreme Court, right? And this mm. is part of the history of modern America that can be sort of punctuated by Supreme Court action. Right. Supreme Court cases. And you can sort of attract the development of these politics, particularly the politics on race in the United States through a Supreme Court lens, kind of, right? All the way into today, all the way into the last term at the Supreme Court, all the way into the term that's upcoming in uh, like a week at the Supreme Court, right?
0: Right. And just to be clear, you know, when you say last term, and we'll talk about this a bit later, but Students for Fair Admissions v. Harvard, the case that overturned affirmative action last term, was a case that really embraced a philosophy that you can trace to this era in history and the Southern Manifesto.
1: And Peter, you just said too that like, People don't really learn about this in like high school history and stuff like that. You also don't learn about this in law school. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think this is something we talk about a lot, which is that like in law school, you are learning Supreme Court cases and jurisprudence completely abstracted from a historical and sociological context in which these cases happened. Right.
0: Mm. And an ideological context. Right. I, I think part of the story that we want to tell here is about how, yes, in some sense, the Southern political institutions were defeated in the 1950s. They lost a bunch of court cases. But these are conversations, conversations about race, about desegregation, about equal protection, that we are in a lot of ways now having on their terms, on the terms that were sort of outlined by Southern political actors expressly racist political actors in the 1950s and 60s. That's a history that isn't taught in high school or college or law school consistently at all. Mm-hmm.
1: So the Southern Manifesto, the South's quote-unquote massive resistance campaign to desegregation, you're not learning this as part of the Your education on Brown v. Board of Education in law school. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And, you know, I think it's worth noting and we'll sort of tie this together toward the end of the episode that the way that modern conservatives look at much of our Constitution is guided by. The anti-Brown v. Board segregationist movement of the 1950s. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And so like Peter said, we're not historians, but we know this stuff because we think it's important for understanding the conservative legal movement, the Supreme Court, and the politics that shape it, right? And so that's what this episode is about. This will still be an episode about the conservative legal movement, about Mm -hmm. the Supreme Court. Exactly, It'll be about giving you, the listener, things you need to know to understand
0: how we are, where we are. Yeah. Yeah. So let's start with Brown v. the Board of Education. Sure. Rhiannon, you are the expert, I've heard.
1: Yeah, I would love to talk about Brown v. (laughs) Board of Education. Another thing people don't learn in law school, I would put money on maybe... A slight majority of law students making it through three years of law school and not knowing that there's a Brown v. Board of Education, too, mm-hmm. that there was a second Brown v. Board Supreme Court case the very next mm-hmm. year. So it's all about placing all of this in a proper historical context, right, to like actually understand why we are where we are today. But let's talk Brown one, Brown v. Board of Education, the one that everybody knows about. It's a 1954 unanimous Supreme Court decision that we are taught is, you know, one of the best moments in American history, right? Mm -hmm. One of the best things to have happened, certainly at the Supreme Court. One of the reasons we are taught that the Supreme Court is great and fantastic and a morally good institution, right? So let's talk about the case a little bit. Obviously, what the 14th Amendment means in terms of like ensuring an equal society on the basis of race Obviously, there were Supreme Court cases before Brown v. Board about this topic. There were Supreme Court cases about segregation, even. There were Supreme Court cases about classifying people on the basis of race. But a good place to start, I think, in modern American politics on the question of legal classifications of race, what race means legally. Brown v. Board of Education is a good place to start, right? So, it's a unanimous decision. 9-0 Chief Justice Earl Warren and Brown v. Board of Education says simply that segregation in public schools is unconstitutional. It is a violation of the 14th Amendment, right? From the case, quote, in the field of public education, the doctrine of separate but equal has no place. Wow. USA. USA. <laughs> yeah. Background goes wild. (laughs) But as it turns out, like the Brown decision didn't say much about how schools should desegregate, what desegregation would really look like, what states and local governments would really be required to do, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, just taking a step back and looking at the decision, at the time, a unanimous decision in Brown v. Board was really seen as a priority, a priority by Chief Justice Earl Warren, right? The decision was considered by Chief Justice Earl Warren to be so important, right? And there was a fear, a lot of fear, that the South would refuse to comply with a decision that indicated any sort of debate or ambiguity about what the Constitution says about segregation, right? Mm -hmm. So in the real story of Brown v. Board, there are justices, maybe two, who actually did have hesitation about saying that the 14th Amendment means that segregation is unconstitutional. But behind the scenes, Chief Justice Earl Warren is frankly really pressuring other justices on the court to make Mm -hmm. this a unanimous decision. Right.
0: A very talented behind the scenes guy, famously.
1: Absolutely. And again, that's because there's a fear at the time that the South in particular is insolent enough that it was going to weaponize any official legal arguments against desegregation and just straight up not follow the ruling. Right. Like if there is a dissent in Brown v. Board, the South is obviously going to pounce on whatever the argument is in the dissent and they would fight the ruling tooth and nail. Right.
2: Concerns that ended up being totally
0: unfounded.
1: (laughs) Right. Right.
0: (laughs) Because they didn't even need dissents. (laughs)
1: Exactly. Exactly. They didn't even need dissents.
0: Right. In a way, they were unfounded concerns because it turns out nothing could stop the South from being intransigent. Right.
1: This is a story about the South saying, fuck you anyway. Right. Even though it was unanimous. Mm -hmm. We would be remiss if we did not mention, as we do maybe every time that Brown v. Board comes up, that at the time, future, not yet, Chief Justice William Rehnquist was clerking for a Supreme Court justice at the time. Mm. Justice Jackson asked his clerk, William Rehnquist, to write up a memo, as they were considering Brown v. Board, write up a memo about what Rehnquist thought about the case, how the court should come down. William Rehnquist wrote a memo saying that Jackson should vote to uphold segregation, Mm -hmm. saying that separate but equal is constitutionally sound and correct, Mm. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, I'm sure he won't perjure himself before Congress about that later (laughs) Later on. (laughs) Yeah, definitely not.
1: And so when the decision comes down, it is 9-0. And when you read the decision in law school, you talk about how powerful the language is. You talk about how unequivocal Chief Justice Earl Warren's writing is in saying that segregation is unconstitutional, that it deprives non-white children from an equal education. But there isn't much more to it than that. Mm -hmm. And so practically speaking, in terms of actually dismantling de facto segregation in the public school system in the United States, particularly in the South, there are still a lot of open questions after Brown v. Board comes down.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now we gotta talk about Brown too. <laughs> <laughs> Bet you guys didn't know that there was a sequel,
0: <laughs> baby. <laughs> never quite as good right <laughs> doesn't quite capture the magic of the original it really doesn't yeah
2: no this is up there with what like jaws 2 that was pretty bad Ooh, that,
0: yeah that might be it <laughs> sequel to independence day yes uh, up there. there we go
2: <laughs> and brown v board of education of <laughs> and brown v board the three worst sequels <laughs> that's right so this comes out a year later 1955 Where, as Rhiannon had mentioned, Brown v. Board 1 is kind of vague about what's actually required here, right? It's very clear that separate but equal is a constitutional violation, but the question of what the remedy actually is and how quickly it has to be implemented, like what an injunction against a school board would look like, that stuff was still up in the air. Right. And so that's what Brown v. Board part two was about, where the court said, again, unanimously, 9-0, yeah, no, you really have to desegregate. Mm-hmm. Got to do it, but you don't have to do it right now. You have to start like the process of thinking about making a plan to desegregate <laughs> right now, at mm-hmm. some point in time in the indefinite future. And this gave the South a lot of runway shall we say for building of resistance to desegregation or to integration rather right yeah the phrase that it's sort of infamous for among legal nerds is that it says that the South and schools in general must desegregate with quote unquote all deliberate speed. <laughs> This is a phrase to Rhiannon's point about people not knowing about this case or not understanding its place. It's infamous because all deliberate speed turned out to be no speed at all. 15 years later, Richard Nixon was president and the South was still dragging its feet on integrating. and He was Going and doing visits to talk to the school boards about integration, right? Mm-hmm. Like fifteen years later, that's what all deliberate speed meant. But Harvard-educated lawyer Chuck Schumer uses that phrase, saying that he would work on Stephen Breyer's replacement nominee mm-hmm. with "quote unquote" all deliberate speed. <laughs> like, no, dude, that's not that's not what that. Right. Is. <laughs>
0: right. Why would you? <laughs> Cuz it was sitting dormant in his brain and he didn't know right, why right. and he just pulled it right. out.
2: <laughs> exactly. Here's a phrase that is associated with the intransigent south fighting integration, a process that ended up taking decades, and he's using it to say we're going to work quickly on this because we think it's important. And it's like this is how poorly this story is told. Right. Right. In legal academics. And in the popular consciousness.
0: Right. Even prominent senators are not familiar with what that phrase actually means. Right. It's connotations and
2: it's denotations, really, for that matter. Yeah.
0: So we have these two cases ordering integration, but providing no specifics about how integration must proceed and not even giving a deadline, instead giving this vague terminology all deliberate speed, which the court, I'm sure, thought was a general way to say relatively quickly.
1: Right, Right? yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's
0: move things along. But when you are dealing with an intransigent political body, the vagueness built into that phrase becomes a weapon. Exactly. And so what ends up happening is that the South intentionally... Gums up the gears for years on end. Mm -hmm. As soon as Brown drops, there is a reaction from prominent white politicians in the South. James Eastland, the notorious segregationist senator from Mississippi, announced that, quote, the South will not abide by nor obey the decision. Senator Harry Byrd of Virginia, who would end up becoming one of the primary architects of resistance to Brown, he says Brown, quote, was the most serious blow that has yet been struck against the rights of the states in a matter vitally affecting their authority and welfare. Mm -hmm. Shortly after Brown comes down, multiple states signal their defiance. Alabama's State Board of Education votes to continue enforcing segregation. Politicians there vow to abolish public schooling before they integrate. In early 1956, Senator Byrd announces a campaign of, quote, massive resistance to Brown. He says, quote, If we can organize the Southern states for massive resistance to this order, I think that in time, the rest of the country will realize that racial integration is not going to be accepted in the South. At about the same time, you have Southern politicians led by Strom Thurmond and Georgia Senator Richard Russell publish the Declaration of Constitutional Principles, better known as the Southern Manifesto. Mm -hmm. This is the South's Declaration of Independence from Brown v. the Board of Education. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Straight up. It starts off by saying, quote, we regard the decision of the Supreme Court in the school cases as clear abuse of judicial power and ends with the statement that, quote, we pledge ourselves to use all lawful means to bring about a reversal of this decision. And it also contains sophisticated legal arguments, such as, quote, the original Constitution does not mention education, which you have to admit... Is pretty much true.
1: Wow. Yeah. They got us.
0: (laughs) Absolutely busted. Absolutely busted. Earl Warren, you think you're so fucking smart? This was a toned down version of the early drafts, which are written by Strom Thurmond and reportedly markedly more aggressive in their tone. Yeah. I do want to point out, I'm making fun of the logic they use, but the document is not a sort of like invective-laden, angry, racist document on its face. It is something that is sort of designed as a critique, primarily from a legal perspective of the Brown decision, Right. right? There was a conscious effort on their part to couch it in those terms because they were trying to make a case that was sort of political and legal. And that's important for reasons that we'll discuss. But basically, you know, they are doing more than making a political statement about their disobedience, right? They are trying to make a legal argument that they have a right to disobedience here. Mm -hmm. It is signed by 101 of the 128 federal congressmen in the South, 82 reps and 19 senators. The entire delegations from Alabama, Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, South Carolina, and Virginia all sign. And it basically functions as a rallying cry for politicians across the South. And the material political resistance comes from all over the South. But I want to focus a little bit on Virginia, which probably had the most comprehensive, well-structured, so to speak, form of resistance in something called the Stanley Plan. In August of 1954, right after Brown. Virginia put together the Gray Commission, a commission designed to create a legislative response to Brown. After Brown II, the governor, Thomas Stanley, announced that the state would continue to segregate schools. And the next summer, the summer after the Southern Manifesto was circulated, Stanley spearheads a special legislative session. And out of that session comes 13 bills designed to prevent integration together, referred to as the Stanley Plan. The most notable feature was that the governor could shut down any public school district that has plans to integrate. On top of that, there was a state level commission to oversee student quotas and the governor could simply reassign black students to black schools with the stroke of a pen. Southern politicians had been concerned that local government officials like school board officials were much more likely to fold under federal pressure, right? If you're like some local school board official, you don't want to be standing up to the Supreme Court. So a lot of this plan is designed to accrete power to the governor and the legislature on these matters, who would then in turn ensure that segregation remained in effect. Now, this, again, was probably the most sophisticated anti-integration operation in the South, but it was not the only one. Florida, Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, South Carolina, and Arkansas passed 106 anti-integration bills between them. So we are talking about a very sophisticated, very aggressive operation that is not characterized by extrajudicial terrorism, for example, Mm -hmm. like the resistance to Reconstruction was. This is something that is spearheaded by political leaders and is operating at the state legislature level across the South.
1: right?
2: That's right. So one thing they relied on in passing these laws and in, in building this movement of resistance was a legal theory called interposition. This has roots going back to essentially the founding of the country. The name of it, interposition, comes from the idea that the state's can interpose themselves between the federal government and the population of that individual state if policymakers in the state believe that the federal government is doing something unconstitutional and has essentially like acting ultra-virus beyond its powers.
1: Exactly. If federal law or the Supreme Court, the federal Supreme Court does something that the states are saying, no, that's actually not in your power to do, or you're acting too supremely, right, you don't actually have that control over us, then the state can like refuse to abide by it.
2: Yeah. You could imagine a form of interposition that like leftists would get behind, right? Like if President Trump had said, just like Lincoln before me, I am unilaterally suspending habeas corpus because of the threat of the Black Lives Matter protests and Antifa, and we are just going to round up people and throw them in jail. And then some blue state governor was like, we're passing interposition laws saying you don't have the power to do that. Congress has to pass a law suspending habeas corpus. We are not going to let you round up our California citizens and Mm -hmm. throw them in federal penitentiary without charges. I think liberals would probably get behind that, but that is not really – In keeping with the constitutional order as it was decided by the Civil War and by the Civil Rights Movement. Right. You know, this came up during the 1820s and 1830s in the nullification crisis when South Carolina essentially revolted against some tariffs that were passed. And it comes up again in 1950s and and 60s as the South once again has decided that the state's rights- to ignore the federal government are of the utmost importance and central to their sovereignty and that essentially the federal government can't tell them to desegregate, right? right? And so several Southern states use this theory to pass laws saying interposition bills saying Brown v. Board does not extend to Florida. Mm -hmm. It does not extend to Alabama, It does not extend to Georgia, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's closely related to nullification. It's very similar, but it is a theory of government that predates everything we understand about modern American politics, right? Mm -hmm. This goes back to when it's like the federalists versus the anti-federalists and basic questions about the role of the federal government in structuring American society.
0: Yeah. And you can find, like, the early discussions of this theory in, like, the Federalist Papers.
2: Yes, in 1790s, around the drafting of the Constitution. Right. Absolutely. These were the ideas they were hammering out.
0: Right. You know, when you're dividing power between the federal government and the states, there's always this sort of, like, well, who's in charge here? Right. On what topics? Right. 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 Right.
1: Who's the final boss?
0: Right. It's a question that, to some degree, we now feel is answered. But a lot of that is because of this era in legal history when this question was like very directly raised by the Southern states. Exactly. Right.
2: There are two big times when this question has been sort of asked and answered, both times revolving around the rights of African Americans. And that was the Civil War and then the Civil Rights Movement, Mm -hmm. both times with the federal government having to assert authority over the states to protect the rights of Black
0: Americans. Yeah, I think it's important to note that this is the serious theory that underlies all of this, yes. right? And right. the South is using this theory to very consciously and purposefully present the Southern Manifesto and their opposition to segregation as a principled legal stance, right? Yes. Not simply that they are motivated by, you know, their desire to subjugate black people, but that they have a particular constitutional order. Right that they are mm-hmm. defending and that they have a coherent vision of that constitutional order so this was sort of their way of you know demanding that this be taken seriously Not just by politicians, but by, for example, scholars. Right.
1: That's exactly right. Yeah. And to drum up popular support. Right. (laughs) When in broad culture, in in American public life, maybe there's some ambivalence when Brown v. Board first comes down in the South. Right. Mm -hmm. Maybe people are like, okay, well, that's what the Supreme Court said. So. Yeah, I guess public schools are going to be integrated from now on. Right. But Southern politicians are developing and presenting this theory of interposition to show and to create. Right. A legitimate looking principled legal stance on the matter. Right. Mm -hmm. An argument that actually the Supreme Court doesn't have the authority to do this. So an example of the theory of interposition kind of coming to a head and the U.S. Supreme Court kind of. Striking down the theory of interposition happens as a result of the integration controversy in Little Rock, Arkansas. So something you do learn in high school in the U.S., I hope, (laughs) is about the Little Rock 9, right? This is about the school district in Little Rock, what their plan was to desegregate schools after Brown v. Board came down, right? Brown v. Board comes down in 1954. The school district in Little Rock, Arkansas, made a plan to desegregate schools, a plan that set out that the expectation was that by 1963, all public schools in Little Rock would be integrated. They would not be white only public schools. Other school districts in Arkansas didn't even try to make a plan. They were totally resistant to desegregation. The state of Arkansas was completely opposed to integration of public schools as well. And in fact, Arkansas is one of those states in the South that passed an interposition bill, right? The state legislature in Arkansas passed a constitutional amendment in their case, basically requiring the governor to oppose, quote, in every constitutional matter, the unconstitutional desegregation decisions of the United States Supreme Court.
0: Yeah, you know, again, it's easy to sort of cast this off as these radical legal theories being floated by, you know, nutjobs in the South. But what we're talking about is a much more orchestrated effort, right? And we might roll our eyes at this now as a futile attempt by the states to try to assert themselves. But there was a large amount of political power behind this. And it's sort of hard to understate just how high these stakes were at this point for these political institutions who were trying to continue this effort to subjugate Black people the same way that they've been subjugating Black people for hundreds of years.
1: Right. So you see there, Arkansas is adopting the theory of interposition in their state constitution, right, saying that actually the U.S. Supreme Court is acting unconstitutionally. And in our state constitution, we are requiring our state governor to oppose any efforts to effectuate those unconstitutional Supreme Court decisions, right? Arkansas also passed a law that did away with compulsory attendance at public schools that were desegregated, right? In general, attendance at public school is compulsory. you got to send your kids to school or you got to homeschool them or whatever, right? Arkansas passed a law that said, actually, no, we're doing away with compulsory attendance. If your public school is integrated, you do not have to send your children there, right? But meanwhile, the Little Rock School District was kind of moving forward with their desegregation plan. The school board had spoken to residents of the school district. They had talked about their plan to desegregate. The public in Little Rock in general were okay with the integration plan moving forward. And so in the fall of 1957, nine black students were chosen to start attending school at Central High School in Little Rock. Now, the day before they were set to start school, this would have been September 1st, 1957, the governor of Arkansas, Orville Faubus, sent the Arkansas Hold National. On.
0: What is that fucking name?
1: <laughs> Orville Faubus. Unbelievable.
0: Yeah. Orville.
1: Orville Faubus. Make sure hundred percent because it's so fucking crazy that like now I'm second guessing. No, no,
0: myself. I've I've seen the name Faubus. That's
1: what it is, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I I just wanted to Yeah, yeah, it is. We can't just breeze past Orville Faubus.
2: Faubus, <laughs> Yep. Uh, that's the name of someone who's definitely worn a white coat. That's So I'm
0: saying. I mean it's just it's just It's just offensive. It's an offensive name. You know what I mean? No, no, no. You're basically destined to be the governor of Arkansas in the mid-50s when your name (laughs) is Orville Faubus.
1: Yes. So the governor of Arkansas, Orville Faubus, sent the Arkansas National Guard to Central High School the day before those nine black students were set to enter the school. And by governor's order, made the school, Central High School in Little Rock, off limits to black students. Now, the students, of course, showed up to the first day of school the next day. And most listeners, I imagine, have seen photos of that day, right, where soldiers, literally the Arkansas National Guard, are lined up in front of the school to prevent the Little Rock Nine from entering. There is a white mob screaming at those students, spitting on them, cursing at them, threatening them, threatening their lives and their families' lives. Mm -hmm. And that day, those students are prevented from entering Central High School. Now, take note that again, the Little Rock School District had made this plan, had presented their plan to the public, to families and students of the Little Rock School District. And Little Rock, by and large, was fine with the integration plan, right? Mm. It was this legal rebellion, right? It was the governor and the state legislature in Arkansas drumming up these arguments and instigating people against the idea of integration that created this mob, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm.
0: And again, one of many situations across the South where the state government was looking to exert control Over the more local jurisdictions who might have been amenable to integration.
1: That's exactly right. Yeah. And so now with white mobs and the Arkansas National Guard literally preventing these nine students from entering Central High School on September 24th, President Eisenhower sent literal U.S. Army troops, Mm -hmm. federal troops to protect the Little Rock Nine and forcibly integrate the school, right? Mm -hmm. President Eisenhower also federalized the Arkansas National Guard, bringing the Arkansas National Guard under federal control. And after that, subsequently for the rest of the school year, federal troops or that federalized National Guard attended school with the Little Rock Nine for the rest of that school year. Eight out of those nine students completed the school year at Central High School. Now, Let's get back to those legal arguments, though. In February, after the school year had started, after Central High had been forcibly integrated, basically by the power of federal troops protecting those nine students, Mm -hmm. the school board in Little Rock in February filed a petition in federal court basically asking permission to postpone their desegregation plan. Right. In their petition, they said the governor of our state has manufactured so much hostility. The state of Arkansas has created in the public's mind the idea that there is a legal battle to be fought over desegregation, Mm -hmm. and now the legal battle is being waged all across the South, right? And so the school board in Little Rock is saying, well, now all of these people, now all of the parents, now all of the white population in Little Rock is jumping on this argument that states don't have to go by what the Supreme Court said in Brown v. Board, And now it's just too hostile an environment for us. And we need to postpone the desegregation plan. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. They ask the federal court to postpone their desegregation plan for at least two and a half years. Basically, they're saying, look, all of this legal stuff now is happening and it needs to get sorted out. And hostility needs to die down before we actually go through with our plan for integration. Let's
0: wait 100 years. Right. Exactly. Before we do this, (laughs) please.
1: (laughs)
2: Yeah. Yeah. This is three years after Brown. Right. 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 And not only are we still not integrated, we are asking for more time to actually get integrated. Exactly.
0: Yeah. (laughs) And also, it's worth noting here that the argument here, although I am sort of sympathetic to the school district's position in a vacuum, but the argument is functionally like as long as the state governments across the South are fostering hostility, Right. We should not have to integrate. Right. right. Oh, yeah. What incentive structure does that create?
1: Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so that case, they filed it in federal district court in Arkansas, asking for permission, basically, to postpone their integration plan. That makes its way all the way up to the Supreme Court. And in 1958, there is another decision here. This one sort of more squarely about this theory of interposition. Right. Can states Mm -hmm. say that actually the Supreme Court doesn't have the authority To hand down Brown v. Board of Education. So in 1958, this case is called Cooper v. Aaron. Just a note that this case, just like Brown one, just like Brown two, is argued in front of the Supreme Court by then NAACP attorney Thurgood Marshall. Hmm. And this case, Cooper v. Aaron, also written by Chief Justice Earl Warren, also a unanimous decision. Cooper v. Aaron says that the school board in Little Rock cannot postpone its integration plan, but it also does spend a bit of time on this theory of interposition, right? Basically saying, like, no, that's not a thing. We figured this out at the founding, right? Mm -hmm. Our first chief justice, John Marshall Said what he said about the Supreme Court. Right. So the history of federal judicial supremacy in saying what federal law means in interpreting the federal Constitution. No, that's actually the law of the land. Right. So in Cooper v. Aaron, Justice Warren writes, quote, it is, of course, quite true that the responsibility for public education is primarily the concern of the state's. But it is equally true that such responsibilities, like all other state activity, must be exercised consistently with federal constitutional requirements as they apply to state action. The Constitution created a government dedicated to equal justice under law. The 14th Amendment embodied and emphasized that ideal. State support of segregated schools through any arrangement, management, funds or property cannot be squared away with the amendment's command that no state shall deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. The right of a student not to be segregated on racial grounds in schools so maintained is indeed so fundamental and pervasive that it is embraced in the concept of due process of law. So here, you know, in Cooper v. Aaron, they're not just ruling. No, Little Rock, you do actually have to integrate. You cannot postpone your integration plan. They're also saying, no, no, no this theory of interposition, that's not it. You're not winning the day with this one. Right. Right.
0: right. They're sort of establishing what we now call judicial supremacy. Right. Saying that the, right. The, mm-hmm. the Supreme Court is, in fact, the final arbiter of the federal constitution. The states don't right. get to weigh in on mm-hmm. that in any meaningful way. And that sort of theory of the law has reigned for 70 years with complaints from both sides. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, as the Supreme Court has gotten more conservative, you've seen people on the left questioning it. Cooper v. Aaron also came up a couple of years ago when some states were sort of trying to fudge federal covid requirements. Right. <laughs> yeah. And exert themselves in that sense.
2: Yeah. Reagan's attorney general, Ed Meese, was a big critic of this mm-hmm. and judicial supremacy in general, because back then they felt like they were on the outs right. and didn't like the liberal supremacy.
0: Right. I think, to be frank, both sides have taken disingenuous positions on this at different times absolutely, based on who is in power. But for the most part, it hasn't really been seriously questioned. And so this sort of marks the defeat of the legal theory behind the resistance to Brown, right? Right. And-, right. and The southern jurisdictions are left pondering their options. Mm -hmm. So following these losses, and, you know, the Little Rock loss is one example, but they're taking L's across the South in this era. Southern jurisdictions move towards a strategy of sort of surface level compliance with anti-segregation orders while trying to find the biggest loopholes that they can find.
1: Mm Right. Right.
2: If you remember our episode on Palmer v. Thompson and <laughs> yeah. public pools, you can guess where this is going. Right. Yeah, this is
0: sort of the precursor to drained pool politics, right? Exactly. Cooper v. Aaron dropped on September 12th, 1958. On September 27th, James Lindsay Almond, the governor of Virginia, ordered public schools in Warren County, Arlington County, Charlottesville, and Norfolk to shut down entirely rather than integrate. Right. In 1959, Prince Edward County, Virginia, was ordered to integrated schools. Instead, closed its public school system entirely. White families attended private schools, propped up through state funds, while black families had no education option at all in Prince Edward County until 1963, four years where black kids were either getting no education, getting education at home or getting education out of like makeshift private schools in black communities.
1: Right. But not supported by the state at all. Not supported
0: by the state. Some great books have been written about this, but literally former black teachers who no longer had jobs were just teaching kids in their basements, you know, Mm -hmm. just literally makeshift education for four years. Yeah. Think about how much people complain about like Zoom school. And how, what that has like done to our generation. Right. Think about yeah. literally having public education stripped away from your community for half a decade. Yeah. Right.
1: Yeah, exactly. And beyond the effect on the literal lack of education delivery to black students right across the South, not just in Virginia, because a lot of these jurisdictions were just literally closing their schools. There is also a massive ripple effect here on Black educators in the South. So between 1952 and the late 1970s, more than 100,000 Black principals and educators were either fired from their positions or demoted, right? These were in many, many cases, very highly credentialed educators. And in many cases, they were more highly credentialed than the white teachers that they were replaced with. This is actually because of a history, particularly in the first half of the 20th century, that Black people in the South were often educated at the undergrad level, will get their bachelor's degrees at HBCUs, right? Historically black colleges and universities. And then there was a wave at this time period, a great educational migration where black people with those undergraduate degrees would then move to the Midwest or the Northeast for graduate degrees, doctoral programs in education, and then they would go back to the South to teach, right? So before Brown v. Board of Education, black schools in some states had on average more highly credentialed educators than the white schools in those states, right? Because black educators were going and getting master's degrees in education, Mm -hmm. were going and getting PhDs in education at NYU, at the University of Chicago.
0: And I think it's important to note part of the reason that this was so disproportionate is because this was a job that black people were allowed right. to have right. without much trouble, right? Because they were, for the most part, teaching black students. That's right. right. So you can become a teacher at a black school and have a career, or you can try to break into a white field where it was going to be a fucking nightmare if it was even remotely possible. Right. Right. And so you end up having a much larger percentage of black people dedicating their lives to teaching. Right.
1: And it's this sort of history and cultural tradition of an emphasis on education in the black community, especially in the South. Right. Even in segregated schools or particularly in segregated schools before Brown. Right.
0: Yeah. You know, it's important to note that there is some integration happening, but it's happening among students and they need more teachers at all the integrated schools, because there are now more students. And instead of hiring the well-qualified black teachers who taught at those black schools, the local school districts start hiring white teachers. Mm -hmm. So this is functionally a loophole, right? It's their way of sort of pushing back against integration by focusing on teachers rather than students. Mm -hmm.
1: But then, After Brown v. Board comes down and after Southern states begin this massive resistance campaign, right, these black educators are basically completely wiped out of the field. Right. They Mm. are fired. They are replaced with white educators who are less credentialed than they are. And, you know, we talk about the gap in education, the loss of education at this time for black students. Today, you see this effect in black educators, right, in 17 states that had segregated schools before Brown. At that time, before Brown came down, 35 to 50 percent of the teachers and principals in those states were black. Today in 2023 not a single state in the country even approaches those percentages of black educators. Today less than 7% of teachers in the United States are black, 11% of principals are black and just 3% of superintendents are black. So obviously the battle over integration, the battle over segregated public schools had massive impact on black students of course. But we can't skip over the impact that it had on whole communities, Mm -hmm. on career paths and futures, right, on livelihoods. And you can't deny the effect that it has still today on our education system.
0: There is an alternate reality where more white kids are taught by black teachers, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Where
1: integration included and comprehended the integration of educators as well, right? right? Your teachers, your principals, and your superintendents. Right. Right.
0: White kids growing up with black role models, right? With black people teaching them throughout their formative years. You know, you don't want to get too speculative, but it's hard not to sort of contemplate the scope of what was lost here.
2: That's right. And so, of course... The flip side of this is if you're closing all of this like public education, you still need to have outlets for white kids to continue to be educated separately, right? And so right around this time, what you see is generally speaking, broadly speaking, the rebuilding yes. of segregated America, right? Starting in earnest in a way that gets around or adapts to the new legal landscape. So the flip side of closing public schools are opening what come to be known as segregation academies throughout the South, which are white-only private schools that only became affordable because of massive public subsidies and private donations. Virginia was the trailblazer on this. And they were giving out what were then called tuition grants, what we would now know as vouchers, Hmm. school choice vouchers that were the modern day equivalent of $2,500 per kid. So unless you were like really dirt poor, white kids could continue to get educated essentially for free Mm -hmm. or on the public's dime rather at All white schools, whites only
0: schools. Right. The vouchers are for people whose schools were integrated. So the black schools were eliminated. The black schools were wiped out. So I believe what was happening was that they were saying, hey, if you're at a school that's now being integrated, guess what? You get a voucher, which was functionally just white schools because the black schools weren't being integrated in that sense. Right.
2: This took, I think, about a decade to eventually be ruled unconstitutional. But in the meantime, again, a full generation of lost opportunity, lost education. And this wasn't just in Virginia. North Carolina had free tuition for white academies. Tennessee allowed for school choice. And this was also, I think, The beginning of the foundation for the modern Republican political coalition, because what you see is economists, conservative economists like Milton Friedman and Hayek hopping on this train for entirely different reasons, right? They are part of the low tax, low public service movement, and Friedman in particular was open about the fact that his ultimate goal was to end public education in America entirely, right? Like Mm -hmm. that was what he wanted, but they saw allies there, right? This is a libertarian, business-friendly sort of laissez-faire economics conservatism that is finding common cause with a working-class, racist, angry mob,
0: right? Sort of the two sides of like the National Review Coalition that formed at the end of the 50s. Right.
2: And this is a big part of how that coalition was formed, how it started, which was uh, how modern politics were birthed. Uh, You know, the Republican Party at this point had been locked out of power in the South for the entire century. You know, this period was known as the Solid South period, where Democrats held almost every single office in the South. Dixiecrats, racist Dixiecrats. And the Republican party pursued something. They talked about it openly. They called uh, the Southern strategy, which was to pry apart the working class coalition of the Democratic party by peeling off racially resentful Southern whites. And the cynicism of it was was pretty disgusting. I have a, an interview here. One sec, let me find it. In 1970, one of Nixon's top guys said, you don't want to attack the Voting Rights Act. You want Blacks to register in large numbers in the South because that's what drives white Democrats to change their party affiliation. <laughs> mm-hmm. That is the takeover of the Democrats by black voters is driving white Southerners into our arms. It's really kind of shocking, actually, how open they were about it. Mm-hmm. And this goes back to the to the late 50s and early 60s. And you've got George Wallace and Barry Goldwater and this whole movement Around making segregation a Republican cause. Yeah. And that broke the New Deal Democratic coalition and gave us the modern two parties as they exist today. Right. And so you can also see what a natural marriage this is with the conservative legal movement at the time, right? Right. This is a movement, its seeds were in originally in revolt to the New Deal, but picked up a lot of steam in reaction to the civil rights movement and the sexual revolution in the 50s and 60s. And so what you have are a lot of conservative piece of shit racist lawyers scheming about getting more power while the Republican Party is remaking itself around a new coalition and a new politics around segregation. Which is, I think, why early on the conservative legal movement wasn't as influential as the parties weren't quite yet sorted, right? There were a lot of legacy Dixiecrats, a lot of legacy Rockefeller Republicans, both in elected office and as voters, that took several years to filter, right? To change parties, to change party identification, to change voting habits. But as that filtering happened, this ideological legal movement found a more and more welcoming home in Republican partisan politics mm-hmm. and gained more and more prominence and power as a result.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Like, you simply cannot understand modern day American politics without understanding the south's massive resistance to brown v board right and you can't understand the conservative legal movement and you can't understand a hyper conservative supreme court without understanding the history around and the history that flowed out of brown v board of education right brown v board of education and the southern violent resistance political legal and otherwise to integrating society is at the heart is, is resonates into all of our modern dialogue about racial segregation and affirmative action stuff today, but in all of our dialogue about what race means in the United States, right? About what it means to be a person of color, about these legal debates about rights, rights of minorities, civil rights, All of that sort of tone, the vocabulary, the arguments we have, right, really foundationally come out of this time period in American history. Right. One in particular legal debate that comes out of Brown v. Board is about what it is that Brown v. Board actually ordered. Like, yes, Brown v. Board said that segregation in public schools was unconstitutional, but What aspect of segregation? Right. This is the debate. We've mentioned it on the podcast before. This is the debate about if the 14th Amendment equal protection clause, at least on race stuff, if it is demanding an anti classification theory or an anti subordination theory. Right. Does Brown v. Board of Education demand that students are not classified on the basis of race? That nobody is labeled, Mm -hmm. right? White or black? Mm -hmm. Or does Brown v. Board of Education say that segregation is unconstitutional because segregation and the separate but equal policy subordinates people of color, subordinates one class over another on the basis of race, right? And so that debate has continued today, right? That is the debate that is happening. One side won it in last term's affirmative action decision, right? Mm -hmm. Conservatives are on the side of what Brown v. Board means and what the 14th Amendment means is that we just shouldn't classify people on the basis of race. That the very nature of just saying that, like, you know, this is a white student and this is a black student, that that in and of itself is unconstitutional.
0: Yeah, you know, to build on that, the legal argument that these Southern jurisdictions were trying to raise in the mid-50s with the Southern Manifesto more or less dies with Cooper v. Aaron in 1958. They wanted to claim that the states had a right to defy the Supreme Court if they felt its rulings were unconstitutional. That argument is basically toast. But shortly after that, they sort of flip the argument. Right. They say, okay, let's concede that mandatory segregation is unconstitutional. But then we'll argue that reintegration is actually unconstitutional, too, because it's not colorblind, right? right? A lot of reintegration efforts basically required the government to consciously move black students into previously all-white schools, obviously, Right. right? How else could it work? So the segregationists pivot, and they start saying that under Brown, that's illegal. And one of the first times that this argument was made in public was in 1963, during Senate hearings about the Civil Rights Act, Senator Sam Irvin of North Carolina, one of the architects of the Southern Resistance, asked Attorney General at the time, Robert Kennedy, the following question, quote, do you not agree with me that denying a school child the right to attend his neighborhood school and transferring him by bus or otherwise to another community for the purpose of racially mixing the school in that other community is a violation of the 14th Amendment as interpreted by the Supreme Court in Brown versus Board of Education. Mm. Kennedy was reportedly unprepared for the question, fidgeted in his seat. And conservatives have used this line of argument ever since. They used it to oppose busing in the 60s and 70s. And they used it, what, 15 years ago now? It was the primary argument employed by John Roberts in Parents Involved about school district integration in Seattle. Mm -hmm. It was the primary argument he used this year in Students for Fair Admissions v. UNC, like Re mentioned, striking down affirmative action. There is a direct political and intellectual lineage here between the arguments of the mid century segregationists and the modern right. The modern conservative legal movement, as it exists in 2023, evolved out of the primordial ooze of the Jim Crow South. That's right. right. You can take a microscope to the Southern Manifesto and see the writhing little ancestors of John Roberts in there. Mm-hmm. You do not get John Roberts. You do not get the modern conservative position on affirmative action without the massive resistance to Brown v. Board. You do not get the Republican... Party as it exists, the conservative coalition as it exists, the conservative Supreme Court as it exists without the massive resistance to Brown v. Board. It is one of the most formative moments in the modern conservative movement's history. And it is like so transparent when you start looking at the arguments being made that it's sort of embarrassing that we don't talk about it more as a country, that it's not mm-hmm. taught more effectively when you're younger, or at least in fucking law school. right? But but the arguments that were being made by expressly racist segregationist senators in the early 1960s are the same exact arguments constitutionally being made by the conservative majority of the Supreme Court right now. Right. Right. And not just being made, being made into law by the conservative majority. Right. Right. Winning. Right. And not just that, but we should point out that they are— at the same time pretending to be the heirs of integration. That's right. right? Because they found yes. this sort of like gotcha way to twist around right. Brown v. Board and talk about a colorblind constitution. Yes. Right? right. They have sort of claimed the mantle of the anti-racist right. <laughs> efforts of the 1950s when in fact they are actually inheriting the mantle of the express segregationists, you know, Strom Thurmond, George Wallace and their ilk. That's right.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right, Peter. You know, you talked about Senator Irvin sort of questioning Robert Kennedy, maybe catching him a little off guard because what Senator Irvin seemed to be saying all of the sudden was that he agreed with Brown v. Board Mm -hmm. and that maybe that the way integration efforts were being ordered by federal courts, that that was a violation of Brown v. Board, right? right? That that was racist in its own way. Senator Irvin was a person who was outspoken about... Brown v. Board of Education being incorrectly decided, right? right? Mm -hmm. In 1963, when he is questioning Robert Kennedy, this is not a politician acting in good faith, pointing out his concerns that maybe integration is actually racist, right? right? And I think you have to keep that in mind as the politics continue. So yes, Southern politicians and the South and conservative lawyers accepted in a superficial way, that Brown v. Board was correct, right? They began in the early 60s quite quickly, right? Giving Brown v. Board the decision a sort of lip service, right? That, yeah, sure. uh, That's the
2: law of the land. right?
1: It is the law of the land. But what they were doing was doing that in a bad faith way and reorganizing their political, their legal resistance to the actually effectuating an integrated society, right? That's right. They were reorganizing their politics against integration. They were still fighting against it. Right. Right. And the jurisprudence lays that out. All of the jurisprudence after, say, Cooper v. Aaron, that's about segregation, is the conservative legal movement really winning. Right. Really Mm -hmm. saying that, yeah, these integration efforts, busing all of that. Oh, that's actually racist. And so de facto segregation on the ground is fine as long as legally it's not in the law that schools have to be segregated. Right? Right, right. So conservatives sort of reorient themselves. They start paying lip service. They start saying that Brown v. Board is a correct decision and segregation is unconstitutional, but it's just legal segregation. Right. Mm-hmm. If people choose, to live in segregated communities, if people choose to send their children to segregated schools, right? That's Mm -hmm. okay. Because what Brown v. Board says, the conservative argument becomes, what Brown v. Board means is just that you can't have segregation in the law. That's all the 14th Amendment means. It doesn't mean a single thing more than that, right? Right.
0: Right. The fact of segregation as it exists throughout the South becomes this like pre-existing reality that the Supreme Court and the federal government are not allowed to mess with. Right, right, right. right.
1: It's organic. Right. right. And
2: while they're making these arguments, of course, racist whites are fleeing mixed areas to mm-hmm. new developments, new housing developments, suburbs, building new schools, using funds to build new roads to facilitate this, all to rebuild a segregated society. Right.
1: Exactly. Meanwhile, while black families are literally being redlined out of those communities explicitly in the law. Right.
0: Yeah. And I think it's worth before we wrap noting how much of this comes from well-meaning liberals not understanding the project of the right at any given time. Yes. Right. Because the sort of vagueness of Brown v. the Board of Education might have been what allowed Earl Warren to manufacture a unanimous win, right? Yeah, Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it also gave the South wiggle room. And that wiggle room allowed them to stretch the fight for nearly a decade until they could sort of formulate backup plans on backup plans. And by the time the Supreme Court could drop the hammer and say, no, you really have to do this, the South— was operating on like their fifth contingency plan. Right, right, right. They right. were well on their way to recreating the segregated society that the Supreme Court was telling them to put aside. And the mistake the Supreme Court made in the 60s and 70s, when you had cases about busing, for example, was the same basic mistake of assuming that the American right was going to be operating in good faith, right? That, everyone was going to sort of strive together for an integrated society Mm -hmm. and that the government need not be involved by forcing the issue with busing, for example. You know, the sort of story of the mid-century failures in civil rights are stories of the courts especially giving credit to the political institutions of the American South where they did not deserve credit. That's right. Where a more functional sharper institution might have realized that they were operating in bad faith and acted accordingly. That's right. Next week, Burgess v. Tompkins, a case about your right to remain silent. Much requested. Much requested.
1: Because it's a shitty one. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> and we've put it off because it's actually so stupid yeah. that I'm not sure what to say about no, it. No, it's ridiculous. But we're going to think of things. <laughs> yeah. And we're going to bring Jay Willis on board. Yeah because we made fun of him on one of our more recent episodes and as a form of apology, you get to be on the show. Yeah.
1: Oh, I thought it was because out of the four of us, he looks most like a cop and so can (laughs) really elucidate maybe that side of things. No doubt about that.
0: Imagine Jay Willis with a mustache. (laughs) Oh my God. God. That's great. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Yeah.
0: Thank you so much for subscribing uh, and listening to our our little episodes where I read an entire book about the Southern Manifesto uh, just for you.
1: Last week, y'all, peek behind the curtain. Last week, we were like, what should we do next week for our Patreon episode? And Peter was like, Southern Manifesto. We were just like, what? And he was like, it's so cool. Southern Manifesto. I've been reading about it. I don't think I sound
0: like this. I sounded really nonchalant (laughs)
1: and
2: I was... Sipping on some brandy in my study.
1: Right, 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 right. Oh, yeah, I've but, been
2: reading about the Southern Manifesto. But yeah, Peter yeah.
1: reads a damn book and then we got to make an episode out of it.
0: No, when I requested the episode, I said it very <laughs> calmly and normally, like a regular guy, like a cool guy. All right, folks. See you next week. Bye, everybody.
1: Bye.
2: Five to Four is presented by Prologue Projects. Rachel Ward is our producer. Leon Nafok and Andrew Parsons provide editorial support. And our researcher is Jonathan De Bruin. Peter Murphy designed our website, 54pod.com. Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY. And our theme song is by Spatial Relations.